0: This Thanksgiving, my wife and I had a conversation about things we're thankful for. And the thing that rose to the top of the list is that we are thankful we did not get married in 2020. We got married in 2019. You know 2019 was the best year ever of the last two years. It was the best year. That's when we we got married. And I think the reason is because this year with all the lockdowns and this all stay at home stuff, we got to be at home. And it really felt like a home because we were there as a married couple. We got to experience what it was like to go out and come back in and be like, oh, we're at home now. It felt, felt good to be at home. And it reminded me of the time when we first got our home. It's not very impressive, but it is an apartment, and that was kind of a big deal to us at the time. And I remember it was in March of 2019. We, we got married in May, and it was in March, a couple months before, where we started looking for apartments. And my wife, being the person that she is, she grabbed her Zillow app and immediately, I mean, this is like probably the second apartment she clicked on. She's like, that's the one. Because I did premarital counseling, I knew if she says that's the one, that means I guess that's the one, right? I mean, it's going <laughs> to... This is going great. And we had this time period, when I moved in on March 19th. We got married on May 24th. I had 66 days of having two apartments. That was the only problem. I kind of wanted to wait until like May to find the place, but no, 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 she found the place in March. So that meant it was the place. So for 66 days, I'm holding two apartments, two rents, two utilities. And that was a little bit awkward, but I did it because I thought that was the right thing to do. And at the time I I was living with a guy, you know him as Joseph, the worship leader. I knew him as Joseph, the roommate. Those two are a little bit different, except singing is involved in both. (laughs) Lots of singing. And it's not like the priorities conflicted that much. But I do remember one thing. There was a media stand. You know those media stands, the things you put underneath the TV that looks all nice and uh, and cute? Well, we had one that was cute, apparently. And Alexandra wanted that media stand. You know, Joseph kind of wanted the media stand, too, because, you know, it it was ours. It was in our place. I'll leave it up to your imagination, Who who is the media stand today? <laughs> Alexandra won that one. Because of the time, I mean, obviously my attention's on her. Sorry, Joseph, but I was preparing for the future. I wanted my attention and all of my preparation and my focus, I wanted it to be on that next one because I know it's permanent, at least more permanent than my time, my short time with a roommate was. I knew this long-term roommate called my wife was a little bit more important than making sure that my roommate for a couple months was pleased with every decision. I think that was the right thing to do because of the permanence. You know, if you're a Christian, you have two homes. You have two places where your priorities are. One's here on this earth. It doesn't mean necessarily you have two houses and two zip codes, but you do have two homes. One of them is here, it's earthly. It has to do with your job, your bank account, your family, your house. It has to do with all that stuff, and you have priorities here. But God's word says also you have another home, and that home is eternal and that home is your permanent place. And just like it would be foolish to spend all of my time in those 66 days focused on that apartment that I had for just a short amount of time, it's better for me to put my focus ahead and forward. Same thing's true for us. It's important for us to get our attention and our minds not just set on the things that are here, but to shift our attention. To our next home. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to all grab Bibles. If you got one, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to see in Philippians 3 verse 20, this passage where Paul says, and he reminds us that our citizenship, our real belonging, our real home is not here. It's in heaven. This might sound like a sermon. Like I've heard this before. I know this. I've heard this all before. Well, that's good. And that's actually how Paul starts Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3.1 says, hey, I'm going to remind you of some things that I already told you. So Paul already had this conversation with the Philippians. But what Paul says, it's no trouble for me to remind you. And this reminder, if rightly applied, is safe for you. And that's why we're looking at this text today. Not that it's something new or revolutionary, something you never heard before, but it's safe for us to think about our future home. Paul is really contrasting the mindset we should have with the mindset that is very common in the world. Verses 17 and 18 and 19 describe these false teachers. First of all, verse 17 says, you have people that you can follow, examples of people that you can follow in this church. So there's people in the church that they were supposed to follow. He says, put your eyes on them. Just put your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 18 says, but there are people in this church And there are people outside the church in the world of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears that these people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We have to do a little bit of guessing about um, who these false teachers were and what they believed, but the thing that's very clear is what he describes in verse 19, their end is destruction. So clearly, they were enemies of the cross. They did not believe in Jesus and put their full trust there. They had it somewhere else, in another system, another thing. Their end was destruction and their God, the thing they ultimately served was their belly. It doesn't mean they were all overweight. It just means that their God, the one they followed was their appetites, what they wanted. It doesn't have to just do with food, although it could. Their God was their belly and they glory in their shame. So here's the thing about these people that were bringing these foreign philosophies and these non-Christian worldviews to the people. Their God was their belly and they gloried in their shame, which means they were proud, of the things God says they should have been ashamed of. They were proud of those things. I think we think even in our world today, there are teachings and there are systems and worldviews that's being presented to you every single day that are like that. Although they might not come in all the the Judaizing form that was coming here in, in Philippians, but a lot of it has to do with this right here, the last phrase here, with their mindset on earthly things. Not only did they glory in their shame, they should have been ashamed of these things, but they were proud of them, but they also had their minds set on earthly things. I want us to think for a second, what kind of opposing worldviews do we hear every day that are similar to this, that set our minds on earthly things? And I think the three most popular false teachings right now, one has to do with your temporal money, your financial situation. That if you do these things, you'll be rich. If you do these things, God will be pleased and will give you a bunch of money, right? That's a popular thing. Hopefully you don't fall into that. Hopefully you know better than that, obviously. Then there's another type of false teaching today that's pretty common that's focused on the here and now in the sense that all its focus is that you would be healthy and well in your body right now. That's a teaching that their minds are set on earthly things. The third one's probably the most dangerous because it's the most prevalent in churches like ours. It's the false teaching that basically says Christianity is about you. It's not really about God, it's about you. It's about self-love, self-care. It's all about you. The problem with all three of those things, and those are just three examples, I'm sure you can come up with more, but all of those have this focus that's just me, 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 now, now, now. There's no then and there to that. And he warns them of those false teaching, just like we should be warned of the false teaching today. But then verse 20 is where we're really gonna look at this morning. The contrast comes. It says, but our citizenship, our home, our belonging is in heaven does not say your citizenship will be in heaven once you get there. You'll belong to heaven once you go to heaven. Your citizenship will be in heaven once you go to, it doesn't say that. It says your citizenship right now is in heaven and that's true for every real Christian today. If you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and as your substitutionary sacrifice, if you trust in him, he says right now your citizenship is in heaven, my citizenship is in heaven right now. Just that thought alone would change a lot of the way we think about things on this planet. Then he says, the reason we set our minds on those things instead of earthy things is because from heaven, from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the savior we're looking for, not a political figure, not a figure that will offer you good health, not a figure that can promise to make your life better, we're more satisfied here and now. He says, we're looking for a savior, a conqueror that's going to come. That is, that's a lot of political, military language all in one verse. Do you see that with the citizenship thing and waiting for a savior? A lot of people look at this text and say, the savior, that's kind of what they called the, the emperors or the important people that would come in and liberate a land and give them freedom. Say, so we're waiting for a savior that's much better than any savior we've ever seen on this planet, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he gonna do when he comes? Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, if anyone ever came in and promised to give you a new body, promised to remake everything about your body, I hope that you would be skeptical of that. I hope you'd say, "Ah, I'm not sure about that. You can't really, nobody can really, you know, overcome sickness, you can treat sickness, but, but could you really overcome it permanently? Really take death off the plate for me that there's no way you're gonna face death. If you heard someone claim that, I hope you'd be skeptical. I hope you say there's no way that that's possible. But what it says here, it says, look at this power that our Savior has. Look at his power. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What that means is, that's more military language right there, that he's going to take everything in this world and put it at his feet. That when he comes back, every political system, every economic system, every sickness, every disease, all of death, it's just like going to be all this stuff that he just gathers and puts under his feet because he's the Lord. He's got so much power to be able to do that. Nobody else could do that except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says when he comes, he'll do that. But you know what else he's going to do? Give give you a new body. Perfect new body in a perfect new world. So if that's true, if you're really a citizen of heaven right now, And Jesus is really going to do that when he comes back. Verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Therefore, because of all that, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Remember, this is a personal letter. Paul's writing to people he loves. He says, you're my joy and my crown. I'm proud of you. I'm proud that you trust in Christ. It's a joy to me. It says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. That's really one word in the original. Stand firm. That's the command for us. If you're really a citizen of heaven right now, then for your remaining time here on earth, stand firm. That is God's call for us. Ultimately, what I want you to get out of all this, these three short verses we're gonna look at, is I hope that we walk out of this place today with more care, more focus, and more attention set on our eternal home, and less set on this one. Although we have needs here, and pressing needs, and Paul admits that in 1 Corinthians 7, he says there's worldly troubles that we have to deal with now we need to get our attention set on that next home, our real home. And that will be impossible for any of us to do unless we come to grips with the fact that we are right now citizens of a different place, citizens of a kingdom, of a place that we've never been. Love for you to write this down for point number one from verse 20, remember your real home is not here. Remember your real home is not here. It's hard because all we see and all we deal with and all we deal with at work, it just seems like all of it is just all about this life. This is about the money we make in this life. It's about the things going on in this life. We're, we're in that mindset because we're, we're living in the world. Paul says, if you're gonna avoid that, you'd have to go out of the world. But, he says our mindset should be more focused on this next life. We're a citizen of a place that we've never been. And that's awkward, I don't want you to think that through. I'm a citizen of a place I've never been, are you sure? How's that possible? I've never been there. How can you say I'm a citizen? You know, this city, Philippi, was a Roman colony. It was an important city in this Roman empire. So I think when he said citizenship, people got it. People understood. Oh, citizen. So like rights, privileges, exemptions. I, oh, I get that. And also the idea of, well, you're a, but you've never been there. You're a citizen. How can you be a citizen if you've never been there? Well, I think a lot of these people, I would just assume that in this original audience who was read this letter for the first time. A lot of them were citizens of Rome and many of them had never been to Rome. I mean, they'd been to the, the empire, they were in the empire, but they'd never been to like the, the seat of power. That's what it says. Just like those Philippian Roman citizens could go to Rome and experience the joys and the privileges and, and the exemptions of whatever, that came with being a Roman citizen in that city, even though they'd never been there before. Paul says we are citizens of a place, of a kingdom we've never been to. This book says some very hard things, Philippians. Although it's a joyful book and there's a lot of good in it, it says some really hard things. And one of them is found in Philippians chapter 1. I want you to look back there. If you're in Philippians 3 or 4, look back to chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says something that's very hard for us to do. It's really hard. He says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed of how I lived. I don't want to be ashamed of how I thought. I don't want to be ashamed of the things I concerned myself about when I was here on earth. I hope we adopt that mindset too. We don't want to be ashamed of how we spent our time, the short, brief, momentary life that God has given us. I don't want to be ashamed of how I spent my time. It says, but that with full courage, this is what I want to be, I want to be courageous in this, that now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. I mean, he's really staring the sword in the face here, isn't he? He's really saying, well, I know that I could die for this, so what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make it my goal and my aim and my commitment for the rest of my life that I'm just just gonna focus on this. That's where my focus is gonna be. There's a lot of things I could focus on, but I need to focus on this for the remaining time that I have. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I think if we took a Scantron, passed it out, it's a true or false question. I think we'd all say, yeah, yeah, yeah. To live as Christ the ice game. Totally, totally. Most of us would say that. But I want us to take a step back and maybe an introspective moment here and ask ourselves, have I really, really been living like that though? I mean, I would probably claim it if it was on a test, but have I really been living like all of this life is about Christ? All of it. Every sphere of influence, everything I do, it's all touched. And it's all for Jesus Christ. Have I been living like that? Have I been thinking about like that? Or have I not been? And to die is gain. Well, that's even harder. That's even harder that to die would be gain. I mean, I don't re- do I really think that? Am I sure? It's helpful for us to take a step back, ask ourselves that question, and then see what he says in verse 22. He says, for if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And Paul's not necessarily a young man at this point, but what he is saying is if I'm going to live, if God has me here, for longer. What that means is God has a task for me. He has things that he wants me to do. He's a job for me to do. And that means fruitful labor. He doesn't say that if I'm to remain, well, it's good because then I can kind of slow down and stop investing in so many people because, you know, I've done a lot of that. He doesn't say that. He says, if I live what it's going to be about for the rest of my life, it's going to be about fruitful labor. It's a high bar says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Which one I really want. I mean, it's hard to say because I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, verse 23, is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better, far better. Oh, again, like let's ask ourselves the question, is it far better to be with Jesus? We'd all say, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But really, I mean, how we think, our attitude, when things go wrong on this earth, does our attitude and our focus really reflect that? it's far better to be with Christ. It says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And Paul's gonna live a few more years longer. I think the idea that he wants us to have is to remember that the things of this world are passing away, they're passing away. It's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7.31. 1 Corinthians 7.31 says, the present form of this world is passing away. It's like it already started passing away, it's in the process of passing away, and it will come to a completion at a certain point. There's a time period of passing away, and we are in the middle of it right now. That's why we need to be warned that if our heart and our focus is so wrapped up in this world and the things in this world, that's when we get into trouble. 1 John 2, 15 is not just a a verse for youth groups. It's a verse for all of us. It says, do not love the world. And that might be easy for some of us. That might be easy. Okay, well, I don't love the world. Clearly, the world's messed up. This is a a helpful passage to preach in 2020 because I already know that. So hopefully I don't have to spend a lot of time proving to you that the world is not a great place. I hope you know that. You're you're fine with that. It's like, oh yeah, I can totally agree on that. It says, do not love the world and that system in a sinful system or the things in the world. That's a little bit harder for some of us, right? Because we could say, I don't love the world and we could hide behind that and say, well, good, then this passage is not for me. It also says the things in this world. I think if we're really honest about where our heart is and where our hope is and where our affections are, the world's probably there. Because don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Like that's a brutal, brutal statement. That if we really love the world and our affections and our heart is all wrapped up in the things in this world, God's love is not in it. Like we can't love God and the world at the same time. Both are too big to fit in one heart. One of those is going to win. That's what Jesus said too in Matthew 6. He said, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. That's true in all things. Where our treasure is, the thing we value most, that is where our heart will be. That's just the natural cause and effect. We want us to ask ourselves that question honestly. Because if we're honest about that, that will determine whether or not for us to live as Christ and to die is gain. And whether to live will be fruitful labor or to live will be for ourselves. My family went through a phase. I hope the phase is over because I'm not a huge fan of this. But the puzzle phase, have you been through the puzzle phase? Are you in the puzzle phase? It's like I'm a lifelong puzzle maker or whatever. You probably don't make puzzles, but we didn't make puzzles. We got a lot of puzzles as gifts. My family did. And there's two types of puzzles. Did you know this? There's two types of puzzles. There's cardboard puzzles. And there's wooden puzzles. Have you ever heard of those wooden puzzles? They're super nice, right? Because they're like a nice little, maybe half-inch, quarter-inch thick wood, and it's all nice. And then you've got the cardboard. Once you do the wood one, you're like, oh, cardboard puzzles. Psh, too good for that now. But those cardboard puzzles, I'm the kind of guy, and I just, let's just be honest. We're just being honest, okay? I see the blue sky, and I see a puzzle piece that like probably fits, but maybe it's not like the right one, and I try to shove it in there. I'm that guy. Are you that person? You need to ruin it for everybody. And all the real serious puzzle people are like, get out of here. Stop messing up our puzzle. It's happened to me before. I've been shooed out from the puzzle before because I tried to force one in. See, with those wooden puzzles, it doesn't work that way. You can't do that with the wooden puzzle because it's firm and it's solid. But the nice thing about the wooden puzzles is when you can, like, drop the puzzle piece and it just fits right in because it's nice and and thick and it's heavy and it just fits perfectly just like a glove. There's no forcing it in. You force it in, you'll break it. You know, if it feels like there's just not a great, great fit in this world for you as a Christian, that's because you're a wooden puzzle piece. You're not a cardboard puzzle piece anymore. You used to be. You used to be a cardboard puzzle piece that either had a fit in the world or could be jammed in the world, like everybody tries to do. Every young kid growing up tries to fit in the world, find their place or or, or force themselves in. If you're a Christian you are now a new type of puzzle piece that only has one destination one perfect fit and it will fit like a glove and it will be perfect because your home is not here it's what the author of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews 11 verse 13 where he said Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all those people who were patriarchs who lived they were campers they're professional campers have you ever thought about them that way they're great campers Because God called Abraham as like a 75, 80-year-old man. He called him out of his land of Ur, where he lived his whole life. He had his family. He had his place. He had his land. I'm sure he was wealthy. He was well off. He had his retirement set. And God said, here's your new retirement plan. You're going to be a camper for the rest of your life. You're going to live in tents. Is that the retirement plan you're saving for? It's like the the Abraham plan. It's the that we're going to live in a tent. We're going to downsize. It's massively downsize to tents. Hopefully, that's not the retirement plan you're saving for. Hopefully... You're shooting a little higher than that. But that was Abraham's thing. But it wasn't because he wanted to. It wasn't because he thought that was going to be better than his city. It was because God made a promise. It says God promised him a city, and Abraham lived his whole life, and he didn't see the city. He didn't see the nation. It took him 15 years just to see the offspring, the sun, the heir. says these died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, like long distance, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Like that is a key component to all of this. We have to recognize we're strangers and exiles. You are a wooden puzzle piece that does not fit in any of these cardboard puzzle piece slots. Strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's what Abraham was seeking. For if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If you think about Abraham's life, he had he lived for 75 years. He had almost another 75 left. He had a lot of time to go back, a lot of time to give up on God's promises. He had a lot of time to do that. Even when he was trying to find a, a wife for his son after his wife died, Sarah, after that, he sent a servant back to the land. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't go back himself. He's done with it. It's dead to him. God made a promise. God made a promise that he was gonna have a land, he was gonna have a seed, he was gonna have blessing and he believed it. You know, God has made a promise to you too. He's made a promise, he's included you in that promise. How amazing God has included each and every one of us who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's included us in that promise. And here's what the promise is, verse 16 of Hebrews 11. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's proud of these people for he has prepared for them a city. He's prepared a city for you too. And in John chapter 14, Jesus said he's going there to prepare a place for you. How often are we just so concerned, so caught up, so wrapped up with all of our heart and everything in this world. It's helpful for us to take a break from that and recognize maybe for some of us, our attitudes, our affections, our thoughts have been in the wrong place. We should be honest enough to admit that about ourselves and to, Commit to focus on Jesus' coming because that's what Paul does. Next verse, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, he says, This Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes to liberate these people, he's going to transform our lowly body. Not just theirs, but he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. You said that's a radical claim, unless you have all the power, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, all power. In heaven and on earth, all authority has been given to me, and I'm gonna take everything and I'm gonna put it underneath my feet. And if you're rightly aligned with me, I'll give you a new body, a glorious body. Sometimes we disconnect those two. Sometimes we think, well, I'd love to have the benefits of that, but I would kind of prefer Jesus to kind of stay off for a little bit. I want my resurrection body now, so I can kind of do the stuff here and now. And then maybe in the future, like I can get that resurrection body or I want, that, I want that resurrection body now, but I want to enjoy the things of this world now. Paul says, no, 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 those come all at once. That's a, that's a package deal right there. That when Jesus comes back and gives us our new bodies, all the affairs of this life, all the things that we like in this life, they're, they're done. Which is why it's helpful for us to shift our perspective a little bit. And Paul says, and it's so clear in all of his letters, he wants people to be remembering and thinking about the return of Christ and knowing that when Jesus comes back, everything's gonna be right for us. And that's what we should crave. Not a little fixing of all the things here. Not a little adjustments and little help for here. We should, be, we should be aiming higher, thinking bigger. Craving for Christ's coming deliverance. That's point number two. I'd love for you to write that down. Crave Christ's coming deliverance. Said that this is political language, right? The savior, the person who's gonna come and bring this citizenship. If I told you, you got to live in France, you might be excited about that. Some of you. The rest of us would say, I like it here better. But if you got to live in France, you got a great house, like a castle or a chateau or whatever. That's probably French, right? Uh, The word chateau, I don't know. Um, If you lived in France, you'd be like, that's pretty cool. But what if I said, no, you got to live in France. Uh, The year is 1943. I think, yeah, no, I'd rather stay here. I don't think that's a good idea. As you know, in 1944, there was some liberation that was brought to that land of France, right? There are some people who came in, some victors, the Americans, um, who came in and brought victory. That's the idea here, that you are living in occupied territory right now, and we're waiting for a victor. We're waiting for the winner. We're waiting for the ultimate Lord. We're waiting for him to come back and deliver us from this time of bondage, this time of sin. Problem is, a lot of us can look at point number one and say, yeah, I'm good with that. This world's not my home. That's great but that does not necessarily equal us putting all of our hope on Jesus and his return. The problem is a lot of Christians recognize the first part, and they see, well, the world's not my home because I don't like it here, and things haven't turned out the way I wanted to here. And they understand that part, but the problem is the way they thought all the way up until that point is focused on here and now, this life, make it better here, make it better here. And while that's important, it's not the most important thing. While a better America and a better world would be better, it would be good, that is not where our ultimate hope is because God's word promises it's going to go from bad to worse. And the only one who can bring the deliverance we need is the Lord Jesus. I want us to look at a passage, Romans chapter 8, that talks about that deliverance. I want us to think this through for a second. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I'd love for you to turn there. Romans eight eighteen, Paul says that there's this curse right now that's on the whole world it's on us it's on the environment it's on the animals it's on the plants the trees it starts to reference those things here in this passage it's on the whole world because of adam and adam and eve sin there's this curse that needs deliverance jesus is the only one that can do that see if our hope is set on something other than jesus's return we'll miss this right here verse 18 says for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want you to think about that. All the suffering, maybe of this year, all the suffering maybe in your family, and we can be honest about how bad suffering is. There's suffering that's really bad. Physical ailments is is horrible suffering. Our bodies never intended to go through that. Death, separation, pain, heartbreak. That's suffering, that's real suffering. And I I like to think about the suffering of these Roman Christians. I'm sure it was probably worse than whatever's going on here and now. Got some history to back us up there, but I I would say, yeah, absolutely. Their situation, their suffering was probably really bad. Probably, most likely, worse than yours and and mine. He says, but if we compare the two, if we compare our suffering now with the glory that's going to be revealed when Jesus comes, he's using a scale analogy here, a comparison. You can think of those scales, right, those old-time scales, for one thing was weighed against another. He says, the suffering, you put that on the scale, it's heavy, isn't it? And we can honestly say, yes, that's really, the suffering now is very heavy. But what about the glory that's to be revealed? It's not a slow, like maybe evens out, it's a quick drop. The glory that's to be revealed, whatever it's gonna be like when Jesus comes back and gives us our new bodies is going to be so much better that in a sense, it's like we forget about the suffering. Here's what he says in verse 19. He says, The whole creation, everything, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. The whole world will be set free in the sense nature itself. It'll be set free from the bondage to corruption and the curse and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's the analogy, it's like childbirth. I've never gone through childbirth, except when I was born. (laughs) I would assume it's painful. Am I right to assume? I'll just assume that, yeah, I'll take your word for it. Painful, horrible, gross, all of those things. But he says it's like the world's like in this childbirth phase right now. That's why it hurts. It's because something's gonna come out on the other side. Something is gonna be the result of all of this pain and all this suffering. God's gonna bring something at the end. Just like when you gave birth to your child and, and then there's this, there's this person. So it's just breathing and crying. New life. A new identity. A new soul. new person that's gonna do something amazing in the world. Whatever you think of your baby when the baby's born, right? Maybe it didn't turn out as good as you thought, but whatever. It's still awesome, right? Right? <laughs> that's what it's like right now. The world is in this childbirth phase, but what's gonna happen at the end is so much more glorious, it's like you forget about all the pain that happened before. Verse 23 says, not just the the creation, the created order, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption as sons. And we might say, wait a minute, aren't we adopted as sons already? First John 3 says, right now, currently, present tense, we are children of God right now but when do we get the fullness of that? When do we experience what it's really gonna be like in all of its fullness to be a child of God? When do we experience that? Right here, the next words, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption of our bodies. There's such a focus on that. We don't wanna miss that. Don't wanna separate that. Redemption of our bodies. Now, what do we do now? Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. When you were saved from your sins, part of the thing that you thought through and part of what was presented to you as the gospel was there is a hope for you. There's a hope that you'll be saved. There's this hope that Jesus has secured in his life and his death and his resurrection that you too will rise to newness of life. In this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. That's not hope that's just experience or knowledge or observation. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's what we're called to do. We're called to wait for the childbirth to be over. We're called to do that with patience. This sermon so far might sound like I'm trying to sell you a timeshare. Does it feel that way at all? It's like, hey, it's going to be great. Oh, hey, did you know it's going to be so great? Oh, did you know if you, it's going to be so great? It's going it's to change your life. So, you're like, okay, well, what's it like? How about let's talk about the water slides and the beach, and let's talk, like, let's talk about that for a second, okay? What he says here is he starts talking about the body. All right, so I want us to take a moment and look at what it's going to be like. Let's get honest about what this new life is going to be like. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look at this. Let's get some more detail on what our bodies are going to be like, our new bodies. If that's really so important to Paul in Philippians, it's important to Paul in Romans. It's going to be important again in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see what he has to say. This is the, the passage you might know as the resurrection passage, right? Where we talk about how we're going to rise again. We're going to have new life. He bases all of that, by the way, in the resurrection of Jesus. If you might think of 1 Corinthians 15 as the the resurrection passage, I also want you to think of it as the gospel passage. Because right at the beginning, he says, this is the gospel, that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Does that mean his spirit had some rejuvenation and some, some, where he flew away and some spirit? No, his body rose again. That's what the whole first part's about. Now, there are people in this church that were doubting that verse 12, it says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Everything you believe about God, everything you believe about heaven and hell and the afterlife and Jesus and the gospel, all of that is worthless if Jesus didn't rise again. It's worthless. It's worthless. This is all in vain, but Jesus has been raised from the dead. Even Paul, he says, I feel like we've been misrepresenting God. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we've been telling you a lie. This book is telling a lie if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but he did. And in that act, this historical bodily resurrection of Jesus, our future victory was won too. Look at verse 35 in the passage. He says, but some will ask, how are the dead raised and what kind of body will they come in? That seems like an innocent question, doesn't it? If you asked, you know, the Ask Pastor Mike YouTube thing, and you said, hey, what are our resurrection bodies going to be like? You'd probably expect them to say, that's a great question. Okay, so this is what, and then he'll go into this answer. What does Paul do? He says, you foolish person. He gets mad at them for asking that. I think there's a little something behind the scenes here that, that we miss if we just read it on the surface. I think they were doubting. I think that's the whole context. Paul's frustrated that they keep questioning. Are we really going to rise again? He says, guys, got to understand, Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to rise from the dead. It's not that complicated. He's frustrated with them. Then he gives an illustration. He says, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And now this is where we get a little bit out of my comfort zone because we're talking about farming, okay? Never done any farming. I've never put a single seed into the ground, I don't think. I don't know if that makes me a bad person, but it's just the truth about me. Maybe you're, maybe you're like me. You've never done much planting. What he says here is, if you're going to put something in the ground, you have to you have to kill something first. You might not think of it when you eat the apple and you put the apple seed in the ground and you try to make an apple tree and it totally fails and then you move and you never see the apple tree, whatever. (laughs) Too much detail, yeah. But you have to kill it. You can't just take an apple and say, all right, we'll just throw the apple in the ground and then I guess the tree's gonna come up. And please don't send me an article of some miracle growth that happened when some person put an apple in the ground in a group. Here's a general order of things. You have to put the seed in the ground. You have to kill the thing to, to get the, the the thing from the inside to, to put it in the ground and then it grows, right? Okay, now we're done with the farming illustration. But that's what he says. He says, like wheat or, or, or grain or something like that. He says, but God gives a body as he's chosen. He says, not all flesh are the same. Humans, animals, birds, fish, they're all different. He says, then there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. And the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind and the glory of the earthly body is of another kind. And that's a little confusing. So he gives another illustration in verse 41. He says, there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star and glory. And that word glory also means brightness in Greek. The idea is if you tonight took a telescope, if you got a brand new telescope and you pointed it up at the moon, you could look at the moon for maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes and not get bored. Because if you had this really nice high-powered telescope, you'd be seeing things in the moon that you've never seen before and it'd be amazing to you. And you'd be looking at it and it'd be awesome. Try doing the same thing the next morning by looking at the sun. How does that work? You take the telescope, point it at the sun, and say, all right, all right, family, let's look at, yeah, you wouldn't do that, right? Because your eyeballs would burn out. Because the sun is so glorious, there's so much brightness there. Is there glory in the moon? Yeah, I mean, there is, it's reflected, obviously. But there is still light. It's, there's still something that's amazing about that. He says, there's glory in our bodies now. It's amazing if you think about our bodies, the way God has designed them. It's glory. It's amazing. But there's glory of a whole different kind. The difference between the brightness of the sun and the brightness of the moon is a difference between the glory and the importance and the brilliance of your body now and your body in the future. He says, so it is, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. That's the first big thing we understand about these bodies, that they're going to be imperishable, unable to die, not able to get sick, not susceptible to high blood pressure and arthritis and psoriasis and skin cancer, not susceptible to heart disease and heart failure, not susceptible to any of that, any sickness, any virus, anything, completely safe our new bodies will be because right now they're weak. Right now they're perishable. It's the difference between avocados and and SpaghettiOs. Avocados are so perishable. I've never successfully, never successfully eaten an avocado on my own without the help of some woman in my life giving me a ripe avocado. I just can't do it. You know when you buy avocados and you look at them wrong and then they turn brown? You know what I'm talking about? Or they're just not ripe enough. It's like... They're super hard, and they don't... If you eat it, it's just kind of gross, right? And then they're good for like a day, and then they're bad for eternity in the future. They're just bad. He says, that's what our bodies like now, like avocados. Fragile, soft, not totally perfect, but these new bodies, imperishable, unable to die. Next thing he says here, he says, it's sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. When we die... Our bodies are not that impressive. But God remakes our bodies. He makes them impressive, glorious. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. That's something about our bodies, too. That they will be powerful. Where now they're weak, they'll be powerful. Totally different. This last one might be the most important thing. It says it's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. Right now, our nature, our sinful nature has desires and emotions and feelings that are wrong, that are what God would call sinful. And the problem of living the Christian life is you're in a body that that wants to sin, trying to live for Christ who doesn't want you to sin, and there's all this conflict. What this is saying is not that your spiritual new body will be spiritual in the sense that it's holographic or see-through, but that it wants everything that is right. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like? For all of your desires, Instead of being sinful and wrong and prideful and lustful and all those desires that go on in every real Christian's heart that you have to fight, that the fight's done in that sense. It's perfect, spiritual, not sinful. That's the most impressive part. Then verse 54, he says, when all this happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. You gotta be a lot bigger than something to swallow something, a lot bigger. This victory, it says, is so big, it's going to swallow death. That's the imagery, like a little thing and a big thing, that death and how horrible it is right now and how much pain we go through when someone dies. It says this life and this victory that Jesus brings is so big, so gross, it's gonna consume it. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And now we get to experience this a little bit. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing Paul says in Philippians 3.21. We have victory. We have a victor. We have a winner. We have a conqueror who's gonna come back and take us as his people and love us and give us all the benefits of a new life that we don't deserve. Then verse 58 does the same thing Philippians 4.1 does. It says, therefore, it says because of all that, if we're really gonna get these new bodies and Jesus is really gonna come back and we're gonna have these perfect, imperishable, real, physical, sinless, beautiful, powerful bodies, if we're really gonna get that, we should right now stand firm. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, your work for Jesus Christ is not in vain, that God keeps track of all of it that it'll be worth it in the end. That's what he says in Philippians 4.1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If we really digest all of those big truths, we're gonna commit to righteously wait for Christ. That's point number three. Commit to righteously wait for Christ. It's one thing to wait eagerly and excitedly and do it sinfully. Uh, that's not very hard to do. You might know that if you ever promise to give a gift to a kid at Christmas time, maybe. Or your, your grandkid or your kid or something. You promise a gift and they, they wait for it, but they might not wait for it righteously. They might wait for it sinfully. And here's what that looks like. That looks like them always poking at the box under the tree, saying, Ah, oh, can we do it now? Can we do it now? Even though they know we're not opening presents yet. We're not doing that yet. And they could respond righteously or sinfully at that point you can see their face when they respond sinfully. They get the whining voice. They throw that whining voice on and say, but can we just open it now? If you say no, they can say, but can can we open this one now? Not all of them? They might have a little fight with you. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've experienced this. We can wait righteously or we can wait sinfully. I think what God calls us to do is not wait with an ungrateful heart, not to wait with impatience not to wait with a sense of entitlement certainly not to wait with complaining but to wait patiently knowing that it is promised and if God promised it it is good as done second Peter chapter 3 says if the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief which it is and it says when Jesus comes back it's going to be this crazy thing and the heavens and the earth and all the heavenly bodies right all the sun and the moon and the stars and all that stuff is going to pass away it's going to dissolve it says, if that's really true and all that's on this planet, your chair, your device in your lap, even your body, and your house, and your bank account, and your job, and your reputation, all of that's going to pass away and dissolve. It says, what sort of people ought we to be? One thing is definitely disconnected, in a sense, and our heart removed from a love for the world, as 1 John 2 says. But what sort of people ought we to be? Peter answers the question. In lives of Holiness and godliness. Those two things need to rise to the top of our priority list. And we think about this all burning away. Then he talks about, in this passage, this is 2 Peter 3, verse 11. He says, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We should also be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Saying, come quickly, Jesus, Maranatha. It says, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The idea of suns and moons and stars and all throughout the galaxy just like melting as they burn with this judgment. It's the idea of, you know, when you go camping and you're making s'mores or something, you got marshmallows on a stick, right? You put the marshmallow on, you put it in the fire, you take the marshmallow off. What's left on on your skewer or your stick? All that marshmallow stuff. How do you clean it off? Do you take a wet wipe and take it off immediately? No, you don't do that. You do what, like the most fun thing to do at camping is. You you stick it back in the fire, right? And your little metal skewer gets all hot, right? And then it's easy because you can kind of just knock it off. You can kind of knock all that stuff off of it. All the excess is gone. The the, the substance is there, the skewer is still there, but all of the outside's like burned off and then it just wipes clean. That's the picture of this dissolving of everything. It's like God's gonna take the world and he's gonna burn the exterior. He's gonna keep the core, burn the exterior and remake it all. And it's gonna be perfect. If your life, your job, your finances, your bank account, your house, all of that, if that's really gonna be dissolved one day, what people should we be? What's left? I mean, think about that, really. Think about what would be left? This whole world was burned up. You know the only thing that is left? God and souls it's left, right? Even if your body's gone, soul remains, our souls are left. What you do with God is left. Your relationship and your knowledge of God, that's left. What you did with other souls, that's left. The way you raised your kids, that's left. The way you treated your spouse, that's left. The integrity you showed at work, that'll be exposed, that'll be left. Hebrews 10 says we need endurance. The only way that we're gonna have this endurance is if we hold firm to the confidence we had initially. Once you think back to the day you became a Christian, if you remember that day, probably remember having a very sure confidence that Jesus was gonna save you, because that's what faith is. He's gonna save me. He's gonna remake this world. I know that, confidence. If that's not at the center of our thinking, and the center of our thinking becomes our jobs, everything that's going on in the world, politics if that's the center we're going to be discouraged we're not going to be fruitful in our labor reminds me back when i was living with joseph we always had this idea and this thought and i think we expressed it a few times our goal was get married find wives and get married as fast as humanly possible <laughs> i feel like that's a that's a righteous desire And we did, as fast as we could. We were roommates for two years, and then we both found wives, and we both got married, and we both got married the same summer, so it all happened really fast. But when we first moved in together, there were a couple question marks for us. Like, what kind of stuff should we buy? Like, should we buy plates and, and, and cups and chairs? And at the time, we were smart enough to realize that anything we picked out, one day our wives would come in and say, that's not cute. That's not cute, so we can't have it. We can't have, if it's not cute, we can't have it. We were right. You should have seen the plates that we bought. It was hilarious. You know that Target where there's the stuff like, they're basically given out for free because nobody likes it? That's what we had. Our cupboard was like all these free cups that we got. You know, from the Angels game and the Rams game, and it's all just stuff that we got for free. I'll tell you this about Joseph. This will tell you something about Joseph. I heard in the green room that he still does this. So um, He would save the hot sauce packets from uh, Taco Bell and Del Taco. You know when they ask you for hot sauce and you're like, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. Sometimes like, you should be yeah, I'll take all of them. So that's what he would do. And he would save them. And one day I came home to the fridge and inside the top shelf of the fridge there's all these hot sauce packets in a Del Taco bag. And it was all kind of spread out. I said, come on, let's be adults. Let's get a mug to put these hot sauce packets in. (laughs) So we did. And we had a mild mug and a medium mug and a hot mug. All the free salsa (laughs) that we got from the establishments around town. I guess that saved us some money, but it was just good that we didn't buy all those plates and amazing things because our wives would have said they're not cute, we're getting rid of them, we're getting new things. It would have been foolish for us to dump hundreds of dollars and we thought about it. We thought, well, we can get an awesome couch, we can get an awesome TV, we can get all this awesome stuff and make this like a sweet place. We can dump a couple thousand dollars into that or we could wait. We could save. We could invest and and save our money and spend it on the things one day that our wives think are cute. the problem is we, because we are living in this world, we are so focused on investing and spending all of our time and energy and effort and money on this life. It's passing away. It's going to be gone. And you're going to have a new permanent home that's permanent, eternal. And ultimately, it's, it's with the one you love most. John 14, he said, he's preparing a place for you and for me. And if we're wise, what we'll do now is not invest all of our time and effort and energy and money in this life, but invest in souls. Invest in the people at this church. Invest in the people in our family that God has given us. Invest in knowing God more, because all that's gonna last. Let's make that our aim and our effort this year and this week. Let's pray. God, please help us. Sometimes it's hard for us to see past this world. I pray that, as we've talked about it this morning, I pray that we'd continue this mindset, that when things go wrong and when our houses break down and our cars aren't the way we want them to be, that we remember and we take encouragement in the fact that this world is not our home and it's not permanent and it's all gonna dissolve anyway. I pray that we would not sin based on the things that will burn, that would be so wrong for us. I pray that we'd live in light of your return and know that every single thought and deed and action is gonna be exposed. If that's true, what sort of people ought we to be? Please help us keep this mindset. We're so distractible, it's hard to keep this mindset. So I pray that we'd walk out of this place and we'd live our lives this week with a greater focus, more attention, more energy and effort spent on thinking about you and investing in our future homes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.